Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So I heard my niece talking about death with her parents. The niece is four years old and she's experiencing a death in the family for the first time. It was her great-grandmother that passed away. Maybe some of you have known the Redlands. And her grandmother is Hope Redland, who passed away recently. And so she's asking my brother and my sister-in-law about what heaven is like. And she says, well, well, what is heaven like? And then, before any adult could give her some kind of vague explanation, she answers her own question and says, I'll bet his hands are warm. Now, are these just the silly, cute words of a little child? Do we look at children as if maybe they're kind of gullible and they say these cute things, but they really don't know what life is like for us as grown-ups? In a real world, we have to deal with real things. Maybe we look at kids and think they they really don't really know too much about religion and Christianity. They haven't finished their classes or gotten confirmed. Now, one of the greatest thinkers of the Christian faith in terms of apologetics and reasoning through the arguments of why God exists is C.S. Lewis. Now, C.S. Lewis wrote a lot of books going in depth about logical arguments and reasoning why Christianity should be accepted and evidence why we should believe the resurrection is true, not just based on blind faith, but based on the historical witness and our own conscience and experience. However, it was also C.S. Lewis who wrote children's books and the Chronicles of Narnia tell about the Christian faith from a child's point of view. And so in his introduction to the Chronicles of Narnia, he has a dedication that he writes to his goddaughter. Her name is Lucy. And he dedicates the book to her saying, My dear Lucy, I wrote this story for you. But when I began it, I had not yet realized that girls grow quicker than books. As a result, you are already too old for fairy tales. And by the time it is printed and bound, you will be older still. But someday, you will be old enough to start reading fairy tales again. You can then take it down from some upper shelf, dust it, And tell me what you think of it. I shall probably be too deaf to hear and too old to understand a word you say. But I shall still be your affectionate godfather. Sometimes we only look at life as adults. And we think life is about growing up into this more mature way of reasoning and and thinking about life realistically and to leave childish things behind. 
And so we become a bit skeptical of most everything we see in the world. We come, become more and more skeptical or cynical in our views because we know experience proves that hardly anything holds up in the long run. And things that we thought we could rely on early in life have let us down. People we thought we could trust are no longer trustworthy. Leaders that we thought we could honor and admire have proved otherwise. We become a bit like Thomas. Not only does Thomas say, unless I see and touch his risen body, I will not believe, but he adds a double emphasis to his unbelief. In Greek, there's two negative words piled on top of each other, which doesn't just mean I don't believe until I see it. He is saying I will never, ever believe unless I see it. Never, ever. The world is full of skeptics that will never, ever believe unless they see it the way that they think it is supposed to be seen. People actually make their whole careers on studying the Bible only in order to chop it up, dissect it like a surgeon with a scalpel working on an autopsy. And they cut it up into pieces until there's, there's nothing left but shreds of paper, and they've taken the spirit and the life out of the whole thing by their scholarship. In doing so, they say they're on the quest for the historical Jesus and the real Jesus and the, the human Jesus. And in order then, they, they need to get rid of all of these miracles, these fairy tales and fantasies that the Bible keeps bringing up, including the resurrection. And in fact, this is taught in some seminaries. As they do their study, it's interesting to notice their contradictions. These are the same people who will study something like the writings of Plato. And when Plato writes about Socrates, his learned master that he learned everything from, they don't question for a moment the existence of Socrates. Even though the writings of Plato only have about seven manuscripts in full existence, and the earliest writings of Plato are just small fragments of paper no bigger than my hand that date not even to within 300 or more years to when Plato lived. One of the ways that Bible scholars go about trying to put together the Bible is that they look at all of these copies and manuscripts. What is the evidence of what was really written? What was the original reading? Did the disciples who lived in the first century really believe and experience this? And there's a whole school of study that tries to trace back these, these original writings. Did Thomas really say this? The earliest manuscripts of the Bible that we still have that haven't deteriorated beyond reading date to about within 150 years, some even 100 years of when the apostles would have written the original writings. 
And so then they come to something like the resurrection and say, well, this was added in to the real life of Jesus. It is a contradiction in terms in how they approach Plato versus how they approach the apostles because they've already made up their mind. Unless I see him with my own eyes, unless I touch him with my own hands, I will never believe. You've got to prove it to me. Only they're ignoring the most obvious evidence that is all around us. It's like the ripple effect. Yes, no one saw, who is, who is still living today, saw the stone get thrown into the pond. But what we do say today is ripples. Ripples that continue to spread out. When I was in seminary, we had a, a class that discussed how to look at those original manuscripts and and put them all together. When you put all the copies of all the manuscripts that were written in the early 2nd century, 3rd century, 4th century, as they were copying this down, because they didn't have photograph machines, they didn't have uh, copy machines, they didn't even have the printing press yet. When you look at all those copies, they're 99% exact with only a couple little readings where their words are switched around or maybe you know, one copy in one part of the world exists but then there's no match to it in another part. 99% accurate. Not only that, but there's thousands of them compared to just seven or so of a philosopher like Plato. Thousands of them. And so what they do to verify the text we're reading is it's called the ancient and widespread principle. How old is it and how widespread is it? Because if you have a very old reading that is found not just in Egypt, but it's found in Turkey as well, and maybe it's found in Rome, it's found widespread, the same reading, well, then you can be sure. I mean, beyond a reasonable doubt that that reading is accurate that that was really the original reading because they copied it and sent it to all these different places and it was preserved. It's a ripple effect of what happened in Jerusalem then spreading out to Turkey, spreading out to Rome, spreading out to Egypt, so that the testimony of Jesus' resurrection reached all these places and they were all saying the same thing. But they missed that. They miss it because they've already made up their mind. Unless I see Jesus physically today, risen from the dead, so I can touch his hands inside, I will never, ever believe. When Jesus visited his disciples the first time in the upper room on the day of his resurrection, he said, receive the Holy Spirit, and he breathed on them. Without the Holy Spirit, we're all going to be skeptics. We're all going to be scholars that are too smart for what this is saying. We're all going to be beyond the very real truth that will take us deeper, further back, and more widespread in the glory of what God is doing than anything our small world of fact could believe today. In fact, it's in our closing hymn. There's a line in there. 
from the writer Thomas Troger in verse 2. It says that the vision of Thomas' skeptic mind was keen enough to make him blind to any unexpected act too large for his small world of fact. Sometimes our skeptic minds are too keen for any unexpected act, too large for our small world of fact. The resurrection takes us not just to facts and evidence, but that the facts and evidence point to something beyond, something larger than our even our little human world of reason and experience could fathom. That's where faith comes in. The ex- but faith isn't just blind faith. Faith is the experience of the Holy Spirit being breathed into you into something you cannot fully grasp with your logical reasoning mind. I'll bet his hands are warm. That ripple effect is pretty significant because Jesus says to his disciples, you will be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. What do we see in the world today? Whether all Christians agree or not, whether there are multiple religions in this world that all claim truth, you cannot deny the effects of the resurrection on this world. You cannot deny the effect it's had on you. What effect has Thomas had on you when you're doubting, when you're skeptical, when you're thinking like a grown-up and a child comes up to you and makes you feel ashamed? The Bible says we should all become like little children. In the story of the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe, you have these four children who venture into this fantasy world called Narnia. And Narnia is a reflection of God's interaction with our world, only pictured through a child's mind. But at first, not all the kids see Narnia. Just the youngest girl, whose name happens to be Lucy, by the way. So Lucy finds her way to that wardrobe, and the wardrobe leads her into this world where the world is ruled by a great lion called Aslan. And she comes back to tell her brothers and her sister, and she tells them about everything she's seen, and her older brother Edmund, who is the skeptic in the story, He says, stop pretending, Lucy. When our children are able to see these things in bigger ways than we as adults are, do we try to just explain it away? When they ask us what heaven's like, what do we say? Is it just a kind of floating around ghostly place? Is it a pearly gates on clouds? Or are his hands warm? Did Jesus really rise from the dead? Is he physically alive? Is he still present with us? 
in ways beyond our imagination to reach us, touch us, move us, to allow us to touch what Thomas touched, only not with our hands, with something even greater, our hearts. I mean, what's a greater, more moving and convincing experience than to have your heart moved, not just your mind? There's a New Testament scholar that uh, has a course called Early Christianity. His name is Luke Timothy Johnson. And in his course on early Christianity, he's writing about the book of Acts and, and the early Christians and what they thought and what they taught historically, but also from a Christian perspective. So he holds to the Apostles' Creed and he, he's not going off like the skeptics are. And he calls his course, Early Christianity, the experience of the divine. And in laying out his course and his argument for the resurrection, he points to the experience of these Christians, like Thomas. He doesn't try to rationally argue you through the evidence for proving scripture true. He says, just look at the testimony. How many times does the word testimony appear in the book of Acts? Not proving, but testifying. That word testimony, it shows us that no matter what a skeptical mind might say, nobody can argue that they were changed. People like Thomas, people like the Apostle Paul. Their lives were changed, and the world was changed because of it. The message of the resurrection went out into every corner of this world, and it created communities that were unlike anything the world had ever seen. Communities of love. Communities that helped the poor. Communities that were not interested in power. Communities that were asking for forgiveness rather than accomplishment communities like ours because you should remember that you are one more ripple in the testimony of the resurrection you are one more ripple just like Lydia my niece who was asking about heaven she's one more ripple that's been affected by the message of Jesus and is continuing to proclaim it so Let us all become like little children. Jesus says, Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. When Jesus takes us to heaven, what is it like? Remember this when you think about your loved ones that you've lost. Remember this when you think about your own path. Jesus has risen. And our ultimate goal for life is not to leave these bodies behind and float away to be with God forever. But it's to have these bodies renewed, restored, and fully glorified like our Savior Jesus. And that hope and that joy begins already now with how we live in these bodies. Blessed are those who have not seen, but have believed. Amen.